as we observe the Lord's table and looking at the broader theme of reconciliation, we've come to the subject of confession and forgiveness relationship between disciples. And we focused on this passage, especially verses three and four, other passages connected with it. But I want to begin with verse one and just note here the context in the Gospel of Luke as to when this teaching of Jesus comes. Luke's purpose was to set things in order for Theophilus so that he might know the certainty of the things in which he'd been instructed. Here, Jesus has just given the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And it says in chapter 17, verse 1, he said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. The context here, and particularly I want to draw your attention to the statement that Jesus makes at the end of verse 2 about causing little ones to stumble. Little ones. And he says, these little ones, which means he's been talking about little ones. The immediate context is the rich man and Lazarus, and I think in the definition of little ones, Lazarus would fit the definition. In chapter 15, just a couple chapters before, Jesus was receiving sinners and eating with them. Look at chapter 15, verse 1, now all the tax collectors and all the sinners were coming near to listen, near him to listen to him, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And then he tells the parable, parable about the man who has lost one of his sheep, and he goes out to find it. And when he finds it, he calls his friends and neighbors to rejoice with him in verse 7. He says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus has been in the context of eating with tax collectors and sinners. The Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling because he's spending time and receiving them, welcoming them. Of course, Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners. And uh, that's a title that wonderfully is applied to Jesus. Praise the Lord, he is a friend of sinners. Praise the Lord, he is a friend of little ones. Turn, if you would, over to Matthew chapter 18. And notice verse 6. 
We'll start in verse five. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Verse 10, see do you, that you do not despise one of these little ones. Verse 12, you can see the context there is the same teaching that Luke records of the hundred sheep, the one lost, the one who goes and the shepherd who goes and rescues and the joy that he has. Look at verse 14. So it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. Little ones or children, but not children per se, children of God through humility, faith in Christ. That's the point that Jesus is making in this chapter. And we're going to, Lord willing, spend more time in this chapter. But as we begin in Matthew chapter 18, I think it's helpful to understand the context that Jesus is talking about his disciples. And the illustration that he gives of what his disciples must be like and should be like is little ones, children. Jesus here is teaching with illustration, the master teacher. Look at chapter 18, verses 1 through, read down through verse 6. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, coming into a chapter, if we haven't seen what leads up to this, again, if you compare the synoptic gospels, the synoptic gospels are the gospels that see basically the same thing. They see together synoptic and they record largely the same stories. And so some would say they may have had the same source. Of course, they did have the same source in terms of the person, Lord Jesus Christ, and the apostles. And Matthew, who is one of the apostles, is writing this. Matthew was one of the apostles who was in the scene when the disciples were arguing about who is the greatest. And I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but Luke chapter 9 tells us that this question, who is then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, is kind of the outcrop or outworking of an argument that they had between them about greatness. Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Mark chapter 9 tells us the disciples were discussing this on the way to Capernaum as they were discussing it. And then Jesus asked them, they were suddenly silent didn't want to answer the question. Likely, they are embarrassed because they're talking about which one of them is going to be the greatest. 
Peter, James, and John have seen the transfiguration, but they can't tell anybody about it if they're going to obey Jesus. And so there's this anticipation of the kingdom and Christ being the ruler over that kingdom. They believe he's the Messiah. Matthew chapter 16 is where Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ of God. And so their expectation of the kingdom is is there in their hearts, and they start arguing about this issue of who's going to be the greatest. We know later on that James and John's request came to Jesus, even through their mother, about sitting at his right hand or left hand. So this is on their hearts. This is on their mind. There's an ambition. There's a desire to be superior or to rise to the place of eminence and distinction among others and to be set up over others. And so there's something here in the question itself that anticipates the very kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, which I hope that we are longing for, that we're looking for. Of course, when we come to Christ, we are a part of his kingdom, but we are looking for his kingdom to be established on the earth. And that, of course, is in the millennial reign of Christ as we look at eschatology and the teaching of scripture. So that question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, anticipates that. But Jesus is going to give an illustration to his disciples, a memorable one. Matthew records it. The other synoptics record this scene. It says in verse 2, he called a child to himself and set him before them. Or you might see in the margin there another translation of he set them in the midst set this child in the midst of them so here's jesus the master teacher using an illustration we don't know who this child is we don't know if he was somehow a relative of one of the disciples disciples are together they're in capernaum so it's likely that there was a knowledge of this child but that's really not the point. I do think it's encouraging to see this child responding to the request of Jesus. As the child came, he called verse two, but then the child came and then he had the opportunity to set this child in their midst and now uses him as an illustration. Jesus related to children. He paid attention to children. Children are not unimportant or insignificant. Of course, they're precious to God. This one, whatever the child's name is, you wonder if through that child's life, remember this scene, but Jesus is giving some eternal truth for his disciples to meditate on. He says in verse three, truly, I say to you, Jesus is emphasizing, of course, everything he said was true, but emphasizing the truthfulness of this statement, that they would pay attention to this declaration, that they might understand and know that this is the way things are. Truly, I say to you, and what are his words, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we could go on to look at verse 4. He speaks of humility and receiving the child. But the first thing I want to just 
see here is what Jesus says. Every person must become like this child. This is a conversion, a repentance, a complete turnaround, a reversal from the way that we think and live. There's a similar statement that Jesus makes, and we're maybe more familiar with this one in the Gospel of John. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And there in that passage, he's talking about being born again. Well, you get the sense of the import of the statement when he says, truly, I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is for everyone. This is for everyone. This is for the apostles. This is for any disciples. Every person needs to become like a child. I hope that has our attention. Jesus is going to define what that means in a little bit, but at the very least, he says that we must be converted. Access to the kingdom demands that we become like children. You cannot even enter into God's kingdom without this change. God's kingdom is the realm or the sphere in which he rules. We believe in the universal kingdom of God. He rules over everything, over all things, for all time and forever. He always has. He always will. That's his universal kingdom. But a person, when they are saved from their sins, they are transferred from a kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light or the kingdom of his dear son. And by God's grace and through his plan, the culmination of his plan for his kingdom is certainly the eternal kingdom. But prior to that is that time on earth when Christ reigns over mankind for a thousand years. But if you're born again, you enter into God's kingdom. You're a part of his spiritual rule, and you're submitted to his rule, and you confess Jesus as Lord, and you walk in his ways, and you pray that he would rule not just over you and your life, but also over others that he could save by his grace. Now, the, the disciples here have exhibited some selfishness, some ambition, some attempts to be superior over one another. And Jesus is helping them to see that the character of his disciples is not like that. It's not like the world. When you ascend to leadership in Christ's kingdom, you actually lower yourself. The way up is down. It's humbling yourself so that you will be exalted. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The son of man is a universal king. It's the title of the Messiah. But Jesus is teaching here for his apostles that they are to become like children. And this helps us to see that this is not something we are naturally. Naturally, we're proud. Naturally, we're selfish. Naturally, we jockey for position. We try to be great or admired in the eyes of others. But that's pride and arrogance and unchristlike behavior. It's not the behavior 
of Christ's disciples. What is the character of Christ's disciples? Well, a person has to be converted to be one of Christ's disciples in this way, but then he describes it in verse 4, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. One writer described what is this child's character is here as humble trustfulness. Jesus emphasizes there in that verse humility in verse 4. But if you look at verse 6, he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. So there's humility, verse 4, but belief in Christ, verse 6, and he put those two together, and I think that's an accurate characterization, humble trustfulness. Humility, first of all. A lowliness of mind and heart. As Paul says in Philippians, considering others more important than yourself. Submissive obedience. And they have no better teacher than Christ himself, who as the Son of Man, as the second person of the Trinity, the one who came from heaven to earth, he modeled for them what humility was by his coming. Even his actions of humility as he responded to those who requested his help and he turned to them no matter who they were. If they were calling out to him in faith, he would respond to them. Bartimaeus calls out and the crowd tries to quiet him down. But Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus is serving even Bartimaeus and healed him. And, of course, he praised humility. In addition to modeling it, he praised humility when he saw it. Remember the centurion who came to Jesus and said, I have a need in my household. And Jesus' response was to come. And the man said, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus commended such humble faith. And then there was that woman, the Canaanite woman, who when she was asking the Lord to cast the demon out of her child, Jesus says it's not right to give the children's bread to others. And what was her response? Even the dogs eat from the scraps of the children. She accepted what he said with humility, but a trust and a faith that if he was just willing that her daughter could be healed and Jesus commended her for her humble trustfulness. Just watch Jesus in the Gospels and you'll see the perfect example of humility as the son of God. Oswald Sanders said, had Jesus never spoken a word about humility, his daily life and circumstances would have been a constant unspoken rebuke to the pride and self-exaltation of the men and women with whom he associated. He was not only a standing rebuke to pride, but a living example of humility. And children are a picture of that, aren't they? Now, Jesus, I don't believe, is denying that children are sinful or that they may have times where, yes, they exhibit pride. But there is a humility to children. There is a unassuming character. They're not jockeying for position or ambition, uh, ambitious for greatness. 
Jesus is saying here that whoever humbles himself as this child that he has in their midst, that person is greatest. It's not the person who ambitiously tries to be superior over others. It's the one who humbles themselves. Humility like a child. Notice verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. So Jesus is going to talk about how you treat those who are humble and believe in him, but I think we need to just take a moment to consider the fact that this is not just a humble person, but someone who believes in Christ. They have faith in Christ. They are relying upon Christ. They are resting in Christ and what he has done. They're not proud in the sense they're putting forth their own works, but instead they're trusting in him as God's son, eventually trusting in the fact that he laid down his life upon the cross. And notice Jesus, he doesn't say it outright, but certainly indicates there in verse six that he is the object of faith. He is the one to be trusted in. He's the one who must be believed upon and trusted in for salvation. And it is humility to cease from striving to please God on your own and to rest in Christ and what he has done on your behalf. His suffering in your place. There's a humility there, a faith there. Turning from your own works, turning from your own, whatever you claim is your righteousness, turning from that and just trusting in Jesus. And it's in Jesus. Why do I emphasize that? He says, in me, he's a person. Sometimes those who have not trusted in Christ think of Christianity as a conversion to a different way of thinking. And we don't deny that it is, but that way of thinking is characterized by those who have submitted themselves to the lordship of Jesus, who is a person. This is a relationship between you and God. It's a relationship between you and God's son, Jesus Christ, as the one mediator between God and men. And every person who enters into God's kingdom must humble themselves and rely upon him alone, trust in him personally for salvation. Jesus puts it in those terms, and he did in other places, too, where he drew attention to the fact that the object of faith was him is Jesus. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For who is, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the father with the holy angels. So I'd ask you, in connection with the teaching of Jesus here, have you humbled yourself to become like a little child and placed your faith in Jesus? Are you resting in him alone? 
trusting in him alone, relying upon him alone for your salvation? Have you humbled yourself to acknowledge what God's word says about your sinfulness and your idolatry? You're transgressing God's law. Have you come to the place where you realize you're in need of God's forgiveness and his grace? And have you come to Christ seeking salvation? Truly, I say to you, Jesus said, unless you're converted and become like little children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is really at the entrance of your receiving eternal life, humbling yourself, coming to Christ, believing upon him. But then those who believe on him take on not only that character at the beginning, but they live in that character as children, little ones, and they relate to one another, at least according, according to Jesus' teaching, that's how they relate to one another, as little ones, as children. Look at verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now we're looking at not just the, 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 the reality of the disciple of Christ as a child, as a little one, but now how is that person to be treated? How is that tax collector who comes to Christ? How is that notable, notorious sinner who comes to Christ to be treated? In all of their ignorance, their weakness, their immaturity, everything they are, how is that one to be treated when they put their trust in Jesus? Well, Jesus puts it in these terms, whoever receives one such child in my name. There is now a relationship between that person and the Lord of heaven such a way that to receive that person is to receive the Lord. To welcome that person is to welcome the Lord. There's a connection between Christ and his people. He identifies with his own. He said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, he who receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. This is not only a person related now to Jesus, but now is related even to the Father. This is a child of God. And so to receive this little one is to receive Jesus, is to receive the Father in terms of welcoming and relating to that person. One writer said, by welcoming any of those who belong to Jesus Christ, no matter how insignificant he may appear to the world roundabout, we are welcoming Jesus Christ himself. For it is impossible to separate the Lord from those whom he considers his own. Okay, obviously it's whom he considers his own. This is truly his people. And this is not an appeal for ecumenism or something like that. This is just recognizing that Christ has a relationship with his people. And if they are his people, we need to recognize that. And like Jesus says here, receive them, welcome them. Turn, if you would, just a few chapters over to Matthew chapter 25. Notice the relationship Jesus describes with his own Matthew chapter 25. 
Verse 31, but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. See, there's the kingdom. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Jesus is saying that his own, those who were blessed of his father, did those things to him. And the righteous don't understand. They have a question. And look at it, verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? How could this be so? What's Jesus' response? What's the king's response? The king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, even the little ones, you did it to me. You see what he's saying? He's connecting the least of his brothers, the little ones, to himself. If you do something for one of those, you're doing that for Jesus. And so, yes, this is the household of faith and relating to the household of faith in a righteous way of ministering to one another in love, caring for one another in a time of need. Jesus is identifying with his disciples. So I just ask you, if you turn back to Matthew chapter 18, how do you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you treat them with love? Do you act on their behalf? And some of you, even within the last couple of weeks, I just became aware. I saw someone even this morning caring for a sister in Christ. It was just obvious. It's a wonderful thing to see. But we are commanded in scripture to put on love. This is not native to us, right? This is something that God's spirit does in us. And we respond by obedience. And we, in the providence of God, we become aware of our need and the, uh, a need. And then as God works in our heart, we then respond to that need by acting towards my brother or sister in deed and in truth in a loving way. That's the work of God in us and through us. So how do you treat those who belong to Christ, who are little ones? Do you treat them with love? Or another possibility is to live like a Pharisee. The Pharisees had a problem with sinners who were coming to Jesus. 
They had a problem with the fact that he was spending time with them. This man receives sinners and he eats with them, even sharing a meal together. In other words, they were treating these little ones with contempt. They had little esteem for the little ones. Matthew's one of those little ones, right? Matthew was a tax collector. Praise God that Jesus spent time with Matthew. We wouldn't have this gospel if he didn't. So when we think about those who belong to Christ, Paul uses a phrase that I think should ring in our ears, this brother for whom Christ died. How do we relate to them? Do we welcome them? That's the meaning of that word there in Matthew chapter 18, whoever receives one such child. The idea is welcoming as a guest. Taking them in, making them feel at home, relating to them with kindness and love. There's a warning here in verse 6 that is striking. Not only should there be that response, verse 5, of receiving them and receiving them in Christ's name and recognizing that Christ relates to them, but look at verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Not only are they to be received, but they are to be guarded, protected. Causing a little one who belongs to Christ to stumble is a dangerous thing. To cause someone to stumble means to cause them to sin. It literally has the idea of leading someone into a trap. And you've heard Jesus use this in other places. He says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. And then he goes on with the teaching there about personal sin and dealing with personal sin, which you also see is in the context here. But here he's talking about causing someone else to sin. This is not personal sin per se. It's the sin that causes someone else to sin. It's being the occasion of stumbling for someone else. One writer said it refers to placing in his, that is this other person's path, enticements to do wrong traps or beguiling allurements. It's causing them to be tripped up. And Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. Okay, now let's just remind ourselves who we're talking about here. This is not this child that's sitting in their midst. Jesus is using the child as an illustration of every disciple of Christ. Every disciple. Remember, he said, Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom. That applies to everybody. So, and this is a humbling thing to admit, we're the little ones. And our brothers and sisters in Christ are the little ones. We're children of God. 
We're in need of maturity. We're in need of being completed. Christ identifies with us, praise the Lord, but we need to take care not only to guard, but to guard ourselves from causing someone else to stumble, laying a trap for them, whether purposefully or even indirectly causing someone else to sin. Now, if you look in the word of God for examples of individuals who cause someone else to sin by their actions, Satan, I think, is the prime example. You can certainly see it in the garden with Eve and Adam. Eve's giving to Adam to eat. Adam did choose willfully. But then you see it throughout scripture when Aaron in his actions led the nation into idolatry when Jeroboam by his actions set up idols on either side of Israel and they committed idolatry and repeatedly throughout the kings you see Jeroboam's name coming up and up again because it was Jeroboam the son of Nebat who caused Israel to sin by setting up these idols. Now, ultimately, are people responsible? Yes, they're responsible for their own actions and pursuing that idolatry. But Jeroboam set them up. Jeroboam promoted sin in the nation. You can look at the churches of Revelation, where people were being caused to stumble because of a toleration of false doctrine. You can see in Ephesians chapter 6 that fathers can cause their children to stumble by provoking them to anger. Believers can cause other believers to act against their own conscience and cause them to sin that way. Someone can set a sinful example before others, and if others follow that, that's causing them to stumble. There are more ways, certainly. The woman that we read about in Proverbs chapter 7 is causing someone to stumble. What is Jesus saying about the one who causes a little one who believes in him to stumble? How serious is that? Well, look at the rest of the verse. It would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea than to cause a little one to stumble. Now, the millstone that's being spoken of there, you might see in the margin that it refers to a millstone turned by a donkey. It would take that kind of an animal's strength to move this millstone. That's why it's translated heavy millstone. So just what would that look like? That would look like being in the middle of the sea in a boat, perhaps, with that millstone and tying a rope around that millstone, tying the rope around the person and pushing that millstone into the sea. And the person is necessarily going to be follow that and go all the way to the bottom and never return. What an awful way to die. But it would be better to die that way than to cause a little one to stumble. It is striking teaching from our Lord. If we paid attention to this, it would make us more cautious by, by, about our actions and our influence of other, on other people. It's my understanding that some 
even in history, practice this. Jesus may have been referring to a current practice, certainly had happened in the Roman Empire. Augustus Caesar punished some criminals this way by having heavy stones tied to them and them being cast into the water. And so if he's using a modern day illustration, he's using something that would be vivid anyway. But if it's a modern day illustration, it hits the mark. Does it hit the mark with you? What is your influence on your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you, by some act of yours, causing them to stumble? Christ loves his people. He doesn't want any of them to stumble. And he certainly doesn't want them to be leading others to sin and cause them to stumble so that they would be hurt. No, it's really the opposite. And Jesus pronounces a judgment. Look at verse 7, a judgment upon those through whom stumbling blocks come. Look at verse 7. Before he gets to the individual, he says, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. So the, the call here is to guard against causing a little one to stumble. The warning here is meant to serve that purpose. Realize judgment is coming for those who cause others to stumble. First of all, he refers to the world. Verse 7, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. The world here is referring to people in the world, not necessarily even believers, but who are causing others to sin. And it's one thing to sin yourself, but if you're leading the charge into sin or you're causing others to sin, your responsibility is greater. <laughs> your punishment will be greater. We live in a world filled with temptations. We live in a world filled with pitfalls because of sin. I think that's really what Jesus is referring to there when he says it's inevitable or necessary that stumbling blocks come because we live in a sinful world. Woe to the world. Judgment's coming to the world. But judgment is also coming upon the man. Notice what it says in the end of verse 7. Woe to the man through whom that stumbling block comes. So he's not talking then about the one who has stumbled. To stumble and fall into sin, it is sin. But it's the one who is giving the occasion. It's the one who's setting the trap. It's Jeroboam. And oftentimes it is leaders, but sometimes it's just another individual Christian who's causing someone to sin. God is going to deal with that. Woe to that man, and it's not even specified here that it's Christians or non-Christians. He's just pronouncing there's, there's going to be discipline or punishment for the one who causes someone else to sin. Whoa. That's an interjection expressing alarm and grief, sorrow for the magnitude of what's going to take place when you cause someone else to sin. So I want to just stop for a moment and ask for us all to just consider 
when it comes to the little ones. I'm a little one. You're a little one. Those around you who belong to Christ are little ones. I want to encourage you to soberly assess whether you're causing someone else to sin. Your child, your children, your spouse, your family, your friends, your brothers, sisters in Christ. Are you influencing others negatively? Are you causing them to struggle more and suffer more in their life because you're leading them in a path that's not right? Or by contrast, are you helping them? Are you enabling them to live in a way that's right? Are they hindered in their obedience to God by your actions or are they helped? And if you are leading them into sin, if you have led them into sin, if your actions are causing them to stumble, the call to repentance in this passage and really throughout the word of God is repent, turn from your wicked ways, stop, go the opposite direction and take revenge on your disobedience. And by that, I mean, live for the Lord and do what is right and seek to influence them for right instead of turning them the wrong direction. Some of that has to do with our own personal life. I think it's interesting that immediately after that warning, Jesus then goes to the individual. He's been talking about relationships, but now he talks again to the individual, verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble. Verse 9, if your eye causes you to stumble. It could be through your personal sin that you're causing other people to stumble. It certainly would be sin in your life, but it could be something that you're not repenting of, and that's what's causing the problem. And how serious should you be about that sin? How serious is Jesus about that sin? When Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, and as he teaches here, you can see how serious he is by the language. Again, like verse 6, some very striking language. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, if it scandalizes you and causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it from you. What a graphic image. For it's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. You must take decisive action. You must not go on in your sin. You must not continue to pursue it. And don't think it's the little one's life who's at stake. It's your own. Because if this is your habit of life, if your sin is such that you're causing others to stumble and you yourself are stumbling, it may very well be that your life is proving itself to be not even redeemed. It may not be a little one if you haven't repented at all. And notice the language of Jesus here is, look at the end of verse nine. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire, eternal fire. There is eternal fire. It's the lake of fire spoken of in revelation. And Jesus spoke of it many times in the gospels, more so you could say that anybody else in terms of his teaching, emphasizing the reality of a 
of a lake of fire, of eternity in hell forever. Notice again, verse 9, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fire of hell or fiery hell. Jesus is not suggesting literally dismemberment here. He's not teaching that you should literally cut off your hand or literally pluck out your eye. He's saying that you need to be decisive when it comes to sin. You need to take radical action and turn from it. Because if you go on in a path of sin and that characterizes your life, you may just, regardless of your confession or profession, you may just prove yourself unworthy of eternal life. You have a claim, but that claim is not supported. In fact, it's contradicted. It's those who profess to know God, but in their works, Titus chapter 1, deny him. This is a warning to all of us. It's a warning to look at our own lives to make sure that there's not an ongoing and perpetual cause of stumbling, a characteristic walk of life, something that I'm not talking about struggling with sin. I'm just talking about just giving in, and this is the way you live. Some of you, even in the context of this message, may be struggling with a sin, and you're fighting. I want to just encourage you to keep on fighting. Keep on fighting. That's what Christians do. But this is talking about someone who's just going on and on in sin. The image that Jesus gives here especially in verse 7 when it says fiery hell. The word you might see in the margin is the Gehenna of fire. Gehenna is a place southwest of Jerusalem. It's the Valley of Hinnom. It's where sacrifices were offered to Moloch, human sacrifices. Eventually, when there was repentance and righteous leadership in Israel, Josiah went through and desecrated those altars, but it became a place where garbage was dumped and fires were burning. This is a place of filth, smoke, and fire constantly. And that's the image that Jesus used very frequently to teach people about what hell is like. The fire doesn't go out there. It's not quenched there. The worm doesn't die there. It's a place of stench and filth and burning. And what a picture of eternal punishment. That's the danger. Eternal punishment. So, verse 7, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. Judgment is coming upon the world. Woe to the person who becomes an occasion of stumbling for someone else. And if that giving someone else an occasion has to do with your own personal sin, you need to be radical in your decision to turn from that sin and repent. And I want to urge you today, wherever you are in your life, if you're struggling with sin, yes, keep on fighting, repent, turn from it. 
Sin is what placed our Savior on the cross. Sin is what destroys. It destroys people. It destroys families. It destroys relationships. It certainly will destroy this church if sin goes on unchecked. And we don't want to cause any of Christ's little ones to stumble. We want to welcome them. We want to care for them. We want to help them. And look at our Heavenly Father's posture towards them. We'll just close on this point. Look at verse 10. Jesus, verse 10 says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So receive them. Take care to not cause them to stumble. The warning, if you should cause them to stumble and be unrepentant, certainly deal with the sin in your own life. And don't despise these little ones because there's a father in heaven. In addition to Jesus, Jesus, of course, relates to and unite, I mean, is united with them. He cares for them. He identifies with them. But not only do they have Jesus as their elder brother, they have the heavenly father who has millions of angels at his disposal. Notice what it says. Their angels in heaven continually see the face of my father. These powerful spiritual beings who serve the will of God, who could be dispatched in a moment for God's purposes. It's ultimately about the power of God, but the power of God, even through his servants, that we're to take warning from here. They continually see the face of my father who is in heaven. It tells you of the protection of Christ's people, the protection of a father for his children. So don't despise them. God certainly doesn't. Just on a practical and really church level, how are we relating to one another? How are we relating to one another? Are we welcoming, receiving? Are we taking care not to cause someone to stumble, cause someone to be offended? Are we living? obediently, so that our lives are not even indirectly an influence for harm in someone else's life. And you know what that's like if you've ever had an accident and you caused it? You didn't mean to. I mean, you didn't see the car and hit the gas on purpose. I'm going to get them, right? It's, it's the opposite. You, you didn't mean to. We need to take care. These are my brothers, my sisters in Christ. They're going to be with me forever. I want to help them along on their journey. I don't want to be a hindrance. I want to give them support and encouragement because I'm in communion with them. May the Lord help us today. And may we take to heart what Jesus has taught us. Let's pray.
Lord, we are sobered when we consider your words here. Father, we thank you that your word is given to us to build us up and instruct us. And we thank you, Lord, that even through this word today, if we find ourselves having sinned against a brother or sister in Christ, oh Lord, help us to repent. Maybe that person is in our own household. Maybe that person is in this room with us. Maybe that person is elsewhere, but we do pray that you'd help us to deal with our sin and to turn from our wicked way. That may mean a conversation, may mean a request for forgiveness. And when that request for forgiveness comes, we pray that we'd be willing, if it comes to us, to grant it so that we might not have an occasion of stumbling for someone else by even refusing to forgive when asked. Help us, Lord, we pray. And I do pray, Lord, if there's someone here today who, under the sound of the word of God, has not yet come to the place of humble trustfulness, belief in Jesus alone as their Savior and Lord. We pray that even today would be the day of their salvation, that they would respond by calling upon your name, putting their trust fully in Christ, turning to him with their life. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask our men to come, deacons to come.